Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today we're going to revisit a classic episode about someone who's been in the news lately that you might have heard of, Taylor Swift. I'm sort of a new Taylor Swift light fan. My ex-boyfriend loved her and it did rub off on me, especially when she would release a new music video and they were always so epic and so much production work in them. And I was known to get drunk and talk about how cool they were and make people watch them. A couple of weeks ago, I faced what I called a Taylor Swift conundrum, and it wasn't really that at all. I just like giving dramatic names to things. I had bought a ticket to one of her two reputation concerts in Atlanta like a year before uh, it was scheduled to happen, and then I totally forgot about it and agreed to go film something for work that same weekend. And I wrestled four days with whether I should sell the tickets and travel to the filming location with the crew, which was out of state, by the way, or go to the concert and wake up at 3 a.m. the next morning and drive several hours by myself to the filming location. I was asking everyone what I should do. And finally, I decided to go. So worth it. There were these light-up wristbands that were timed and color-coded to the music. There were snakes that were coming out of the stage. (laughs) No regrets. But yes, Taylor Swift is in the news again and not for music uh, or a beef with another pop star. She finally broke her political silence in an Instagram post and came out in support of Tennessee Democrats. Quote, In the past, I've been very reluctant to publicly voice my political opinions. I feel very different about that now. I always have and always will cast my vote based on which candidate will protect and fight for the human rights I believe we all deserve in this country. I believe in the fight for LGBTQ rights and that any form of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender is wrong, in all caps. She has over 112 million followers on Instagram, by the way. In 2016, who is Taylor Swift going to vote for was a top result on Google. And the response has been very mixed to her making this political statement, to say the least. And as you'll hear in this classic episode, in part because of Taylor Swift's political silence, her music has been popular among the alt-right, a.k.a. fascist and neo-Nazis. And they have swiftly which is a pun, condemned her, going as far to say that her career is over. Donald Trump says he, quote, likes her music 25% less now, which makes me like it about 25% more. After her post on Sunday, voter registration spiked 65,000 registrations in 24 hours. The spiking of Taylor Swift song pun-related headlines went through the roof, no end in sight, so we're just going to have to put up with that for a little while. In light of all of this, we hope that you enjoy this episode on Taylor Swift's feminism. Hey, this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. (laughs) 
Today, we are so excited to be joined by Elisa Kreisinger, executive producer over at Refinery29, who hosts a awesome, fierce, feminist podcast and video series called Strong Opinions Loosely Held. Thanks so much for tuning in today to help us talk through this very fraught subject, Elisa. We're so glad to have you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to walk through this with you guys. So Elisa and I actually go way back. Uh, I guess I should say Elisa Taylor Swift and I go way back. Um, Elisa put together a fabulous, fabulous panel at South by Southwest last year, all about celebrities and activism, and Taylor Swift came up quite a bit. The number one question that we left that panel with was, who did Taylor Swift vote for? Um, Later on, I was on an episode of her really amazing show talking about Taylor Swift and all the ins and outs of who she is as a feminist, as an artist, and all of that. So we really, Elisa, we really go way back when it comes to (laughs) Tay-Tay. We do, totally. And I think it kind of started when you posted that thing on Facebook about who your most problematic fave was. And I scrolled through it, and so many people said Taylor Swift. Exactly. And that was when we started this series. You may recall our lovely listeners, the first episode we did on problematic faves was with the one and only Judge Judy, which was such a fun episode. And I loved putting that together. And I'm not going to lie, when I dropped in that Taylor Swift was my problematic fave, and so many of you agreed... I have been dragging my feet putting this episode together because I was seriously dreading it. Well, people love Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. And I I have to come out first and foremost by saying the reason problematic faves are hard is because you're trying to reconcile, and that's what we're going to try to do today with everybody here, how you can both respect and love the artistry of someone like Taylor Swift and hold them accountable. Totally. I think she represents a great example of how you can be both a fan of popular culture, but a critic of it at the same time. Exactly. What I think we should do today, as so many people are tuning into this thinking like, okay, walk me through this. I've, I've seen the tweets. Have you seen these, Bridget, to our Twitter handle saying, I need you to unpack Taylor Swift for me because I have so many feels for her. So what I'd like to start with is what about her do we love and respect? And what about her is seriously problematic and worthy of, of breaking down? Does that sound like a good place to start? That sounds like a good place to start. I just want to give a big caveat. I don't actually care for Taylor Swift. And I posted something about this once and people didn't care for that opinion. (laughs) You know what? This is my opinion. I don't have to like everybody. I don't care for Taylor Swift. Bridget is uh, Bridget's coming out as anti Taylor Swift. I wouldn't say anti. I won't go that far. I don't care for her. Okay. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Okay. Elisa, where do you stand on the uh, Taylor Swift love-o-meter? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that no one represents the resentment America has towards white women better than Taylor Swift. Ooh. And I think that pushes me more towards a love and a hate. I think she's got a great opportunity to do something with the platform and power and privilege that she has, but she kind of hasn't. So I'm like, I'm very lukewarm. I fall squarely, I think, in between both of you. (laughs) Okay. Well, this is good. This should make for a good conversation then. I'm like sweating already, but this is good. Same. So let me start here. I'm not trying to position myself as the defender of Taylor Swift. I'm just here to say she won. I feel like you are. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm really sweating. Um, But I do think that what I have recognized in putting this episode together is that it is very easy to want to look away when someone you are a fan of is doing some questionable shady shit, right? Like it is easy to catch yourself 
ignoring the bad because you want to vehemently and only support the good. And we're going to talk about today how we can hold those two truths at the same time and why it's okay to have problematic faves, just like Judge Judy, but why it's also really, really important that we hold our celebrity idols accountable. So first and foremost, as an entrepreneur, I find her drive and her vision and the fact that she made this lifelong ambition of hers a reality and was very much central as a young girl, really, to positioning herself for the pop sensation she's become. Like, she was very much in the driver's seat of her own career from a young age. And that, to go way back to Taylor's origins, that's one of the things that really wins my respect in her case. I can definitely respect the idea that she was this young girl with a dream and she made that dream a reality. That's something that Taylor's oldest time, gotta give it up for that. I definitely applaud her for making that happen. And that's not something that's easy. Something that I've actually always liked about Taylor is that she's has a lot of control over her art and over her career. And so, you know, you see a lot of things in the media about young pop stars who kind of somebody else is, is driving all the shots and making all the calls and their label is being awful and they just put up with it. Taylor is not someone who does that. Right. At 11 years old, she convinced her mom to take her on a trip to Nashville where she could go door to door on Nashville record labels, giving them a homemade CD demo. No bites, right? So she got no traction from that. And at 11 years old, that's cute. Like, oh, a little girl with a dream. But the rejection that she experienced could have been a career ender for most 11-year-olds, but not for Taylor. She, at that point, learned to play guitar, started writing her own songs, I'm sure bankrolled by her very well-off parents with a lot of assistance from professionals. But at 14 years old, when RCA, one of the largest record labels in Nashville, gave her a development deal, which was kind of like an investment for a year. Uh, It wasn't a full record deal, but it was like, let's fund your learning and growth and progress and see what happens. But at the end of the year, they took a pass on her. We're not going to fund a record deal. Wanted to keep her on the label, but shelf her. And she walked away from RCA and at that same time convinced her entire family to relocate to Nashville for her career at 14 years old. I mean, you've got to give it up for her at that point. Yeah, I applaud her. I applaud her. I will give a caveat that luckily she had the kind of family where relocating to a different city to support the artistic dream of your young daughter was a reality because I've heard many, many, many stories of like, oh, I've got my mixtape, my demo, I've been telling it, showing it to everybody, but th- that, that same person doesn't have the means to do that, the story could go very differently. So I applaud that very, very much, but I think it's very lucky that she had that kind of family support where that was possible. Totally, and to on that note too, Bridget, I think you know a lot of her brand has been built on being an outsider, but really she grew up on a Christmas tree farm. Right. Um, she has this very ideal childhood and not that we should be holding that against her, but it certainly helps to find and follow your dreams um, when you come from wealth and privilege. Both of her parents um, were executives um, at banks and she herself actually wanted to go into the banking industry before she found, before she found country music. Specifically, um, I think that she was most inspired by crossover artists from the 90s like Faith Hill Shania Twain and the Dixie Chicks, and then she changed her tune, no pun intended, <laughs> and um, wanted to go in a different direction, which, again, I, I applaud her hustle, just like you said. Right. I'm like, totally 
applaud her hustle. I mean, it's... And Bridget, copy-paste. Yeah, but it's a lot easier to do when your parents have a shit ton of money. Exactly. And she had parents who were willing to listen to her. So here's the thing. Yes, she comes from a bunch of privilege, financial privilege, the privilege of having two parents who were willing to support your insane dream at 11 years old or 14 years old. And beyond that, parents who were willing to invest hard-earned money, time, energy, and effort in your pipe dream, really. And yet, at the same time, being wealthy does not make you talented. Being wealthy and privileged does not make you ambitious. And it sure as hell doesn't make it a guaranteed that at a showcase she had in Nashville at 14 years old, Scott Borchetta, who had just left another huge record label, I believe Universal, he approached her and said, so the good news is I want to sign you for a record deal. The bad news is I don't have a record label. You would be the first person. So she took a chance on him. And three years later, her record sales topped $7 million. $7 million, three years later. So that's hugely impressive. Yeah. And just to go back for a second, I think the point that I'm making is that both things can be true. It can be true that she's ambitious and talented, but also had a lot of help and was very lucky and had supportive, privileged parents. And that was also very influential for her success. And so I'm not saying that oh, the only reason why she did that is because she's rich and her parents are supportive and blah, blah, blah. Obviously not, because you have to have talent, right? So at the end of the day, she does have talent. I think that's clear. So I just think it's possible that both things are exactly, true. Exactly, exactly. And that's part of what's challenging about being a fan of hers and hearing the critics. It's like, yes, those things are both true. Can we acknowledge that they're both present? The other thing that's undeniable is that her songs are hella catchy. In fact, Okay, putting reputation aside for a second, because we all have very strong opinions on reputation, her latest album, which we're going to talk about further. But there was an SNL skit that I think put it perfectly that was called Swiftamine. And it was a commercial kind of like for Dramamine for sudden onset of vertigo induced by the fact that you're jamming out to a song at the club and then you realize it's by Taylor Swift. And you're like, what? I'm a grown ass woman and I love Taylor Swift. Girl can write a song. And it's so perfect because it's hilariously uh, fraught in that you love the music. And then when you realize it's by who? Taylor Swift, that album, that last album, 1989, really reached across the age spectrum and I think got a lot of people on board with Taylor Swift's music. What do you think, Elisa? Yeah, I think she's really good at what she does. She's a great artist and no one can deny that. I think that we all want to make sure that our politics match our popular culture. So I think in terms of popular culture, she's awesome at it. She knows the game. She plays it really well when it comes to making a product that people can't get out of their heads, right? And that's what her role as a pop star is. So totally A plus in that category for sure. Right. So I'm not the biggest fan of her music, but you know, I love pop music. I love pop songs. And one of the things I love the most about pop music is that it doesn't even matter if it's a genre that you like or an artist that you like. You, when you hear a perfect pop song, you know it's a perfect pop song, right? So, like, when you hear Katy Perry's Teenage Dream, like, you know, whether you like Katy Perry or not, whether you like that kind of music or not, you know it's a perfect pop song. And so I think, kind of like what Elisa was just saying, she's so good at creating these perfect pop songs as a, as a product. And that even if you don't like Taylor Swift, you don't like her music, you listen to something like Shake It Off, and you know that's a perfect pop song, right? right. Like, it just, right. it doesn't, like, like, it's undeniable. So I will say, I mean... Even though I'm not her biggest fan musically, I can recognize that she 
really knows what she's doing when it comes to crafting a marketable, perfect, well-crafted pop song. And really what's interesting is that she came up in country, right? She came up in the country world and in many ways broadened the genre's reach by writing teenage love songs, really about high school era heartbreak that popularized country music amongst suburban teenage girls for the first time, really expanding the demographic that the industry was able to reach. That was extraordinary at first. Then she transitioned into pop, 1989, made her into a different kind of artist. She sort of redefined herself in the public eye, which is not an easy thing to do. And beyond that, her tour, I think her tour on 1989's record was some of the most interesting artistic choices that I've ever seen an artist make. Notably, she featured other really incredible artists and sort of introduced her fandom to other artists across genres, people like Pitbull and Charlie XCS, Alison Krauss, the band Perry, Wiz Khalifa, John Legend, Mary J. Blige. She was in so many ways generous with how she proceeded in 1989, whether you see it as being crafted in a strategic sort of marketing standpoint or as an altruistic move, I think it can be both (laughs) at the same time as well. Yeah, I mean, I would almost push back on some of those because I feel like if you have an icon like Mary J. Blige on your album, you're not doing her the favor, she's doing you the favor, right? Like, there are some of these people I'm like, yeah, yeah, like, Taylor wasn't like, oh, I'll I'll give you, I'll I'll do this little favor for you, Mary, like. That's true. But she was at peak popularity on her 1989 tour. Also on the 1989 tour, I think it's important to call out that she made, I think, Apple, um, she did a takeover of the Apple stores. So everything featured her branding, right? Like from a business perspective, she's been really good at marrying capitalism with artistic expression down to her issue with Spotify, which was that they they needed to pay artists more. She's taken up these causes that do allow her to express herself in the way she wants to express herself, make the product she wants to make, while also making bank. And that's hard to do. People have been trying to do that since the dawn of time. So I feel like in a way, you know, she has mastered that with 1989 specifically, but throughout her career as an artist. Totally. And then the last big notable mention I have to acknowledge in terms of her artistry before we take a quick break is her use of social media, especially on the platform Tumblr, was really kind of extraordinary in how she interfaced with her fans from a young age, from the beginning of her career. Yeah, I'm actually consistently impressed with her use of social media, even now. Even now, you can find her leaving cute comments on fans' posts about her. People will post like, oh my God, I love Taylor Swift, and she'll comment, oh my God, hi, it's Taylor. And you know, I actually genuinely believe that that's not an assistant or a a social media manager. I believe that is 100% Taylor. And so I'm someone who loves like memes and the internet. She's shown herself to be someone who's very read in on those things. If you've ever seen that iconic Tumblr post where it's a picture of Taylor Swift and the the comment says, this is my friend Becky who died after using marijuana. And someone comments, no, that's Taylor Swift. And then the other comment says, no, it's Becky. There's a picture of Taylor Swift wearing a shirt that says, no, it's Becky. So I like the (laughs) idea that Taylor Swift knows what the chatter is about her on places like Tumblr and Instagram and plays into it in a way that I think is really clever and funny and, dare I say, cool. I never thought I would hear myself saying that I think Taylor Swift is cool, but that is cool. Being read in on what the internet is saying and knowing how to wink, wink, nod, nod at it, that is a cool thing. 
Totally. I mean, I think what she gives to teenage girls and young women in particular is validation that they're not crazy, that they're not insane, that they can have feelings and feel certain ways and participate in social media or on social platforms with each other, talking to each other in a language of popular culture that they we all understand and we all speak. She gets that and she talks back in that language. And I think that that's really valuable. Ooh, I love how you put that, that she she speaks in that language where as someone who grew up on and on the Internet late at night on MySpace and message boards and all that, having someone as famous as Taylor Swift speaking in that language is powerful, particularly when you're a young girl, when you're when you feel like all the things that you're doing online are like geeky or nerdy or stupid or weird or whatever. Having someone as famous and beautiful and influential as Taylor Swift say that's OK and I'm going to speak back at you with that language is so powerful. Totally. She brings her fans in to the process in a way that I thought was really interesting, especially with 1989. She turned some of her online conversations into in-person invitations for listening parties. Of course, she used that to sort of build buzz, make her Swifties feel very special. And in so many ways, it married true online to offline organizing to... No, you did not. Oh, I did. Oh, I did. Tell me you did not go there. I just did go there. (laughs) To, it marries that with marketing. She, I mean, she totally commercialized her fandom, but she did it in a way that is textbook organizing. I like it. Where you, she, it is sort of like she made these little organize, these little Taylor Swift organizers. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is something. There's something to that. And I don't see anyone else doing that. I mean, she, in many ways, like, has pioneered that fan interaction in a way that whether you believe it's genuine or not, in my opinion, does not matter because she made her fans feel like it was genuine. She certainly makes it seem like she's being genuine about it and she's making bank at the same time. Like you were saying, Elisa, it it can be both. Question, who do you think has more rabid fans, Taylor Swift or the Bayhive, Beyonce? Oh, I don't know. Beyonce. Yeah. I might say Beyonce, too, because Taylor Swift fans are, they're really, really ride or die for Taylor. <laughs> but the Bayhive, like, will take people down. Like, they're, they're, they are no joke. I just feel like you, you can be Taylor Swift and even Taylor Swift bows down to the queen. Being, Fair. You yeah. know what I mean? I like that. I feel like there's just no comparison. Also from the artist, I mean, the, can we just say that it's amazing to have two artists like Taylor Swift's 1989 and Beyonce's Lemonade. Lemonade coming up in the same, we're like in a very special time. Yeah, I think we're in a special time for women in pop music. Because I think yes. for so long, we've been told that when a woman is a pop artist, that she's just frivolous, it's about her boyfriends, blah, blah, blah. But I'm happy to be in a time where we are understanding and appreciating that as art. So I don't want to make it seem like I don't think that about Taylor Swift. I think that 1989 was a piece of art, and I think people recognized it as that, and I think that's the way it should be. Do you think Taylor had to galvanize her fans and organize them through specific tactics, whether real or a marketing campaign? Do you think that she had to organize those young women into segments of her fans or, like, fandoms because she's a female artist, and all that female fan labor usually goes towards younger male artists and it's something that we haven't maybe seen so much of or have a model or business model for young female fans supporting a young female artist. I actually think there's something to that idea because when you think about organized fandom, right, where it's fan clubs and people writing letters and sending emails and having meetups and all of that, things that involve a lot of labor and in real life work, you really do see a lot of that for boy bands and 
artists who are young men. And so I actually do think it's interesting that Taylor Swift has been able to generate that same level of in real life connection and engagement with young fans being a young woman, because you really don't see that that often. I don't know if I see it broken down in gender as much as I see it in, as in terms of the shifting nature of media because of social media the ability to be more in control of your fandom has never been greater. But now there are things like record labels and book publishers who are trying to redefine the value that they bring to an artist like Taylor Swift. The label wasn't going to organize her fans for her. She, being the kind of control freak that I think she might be over her image, over her brand, over her creative control, took the reins on that department just as much as she did artistically. And so I think that was a really wise decision on her part that she didn't have to make. You know what I mean? Again, I think it's an example of her business savvy. Totally agree on that. And I also think that it takes forethought and a respect for young women and the power that comes with female fandom to be able to say, let me let me get a hold on this. Let me commodify it. Um, Not that obviously male artists, young male artists haven't done the same thing from the Beatles, you know, all the way to Justin Bieber, like young women are always ahead of the curve. They're always predicting trends. Um, Look at Snapchat, for example. Um, All that stuff young girls predict. And I think that she harnesses that power, again, that understanding of young women and just turned it in her favor. Again, not saying that that's a good or bad thing. I actually think it's a great thing because she respects that female labor and is like, I see you and I'm going to make something for you. I think that's absolutely right. In fact, it kind of sounds like you're talking about the concept of a squad, which I want to dive into after we take a quick break. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So we're back and we are talking through... One of many people's most problematic faviest fave, and that is Taylor Swift. Why we love her, why she's a little problematic and hope she can be better. And we want to tackle this idea of squad power. And I was actually really excited to see Taylor go from writing about boys primarily to defining herself by her girlfriends. I thought it was pretty exciting to see the era of strong, powerful women being championed. And yet... There are some totally legitimate critics about her use of squad. Elisa, what do you think about Taylor and the era of squad? I think the era of the squad illustrated that Taylor could really make a career out of both putting women down and supporting them. So she started her career, you know, really, again, in the country music department. Again, even though she came from Pennsylvania, um, was really able to ride that wave uh, of country music, but a lot of the songs during that time were kind of putting women down. Um, I don't know if you guys sample songs, but she really went from a country music star from our song, which was a popular favorite. If you listen to it, it's going to be stuck in your head for three days (laughs) to pop star, which was shake it off, which we all know. And I'm sad to admit was my ringtone for like three months. Um, and she really did go from putting women down from Better Than Revenge, where she compares um, a woman who's an actress to her skills on a mattress. You can hear that that rhymes. That's probably intentional. And so she goes from putting women down to embracing them in the squad. So it's just, it's it's hard to watch this commodification 
of feminism happen through the squad. Like, you can't just put women down and build your career up on that while also surrounding yourself with a bunch of women who you hope to exemplify parts of your identity on. Like, look, here's Ham, and look, I'm kind of indie. You know, here's Lena Dunham, so I also have that kind of, like, writerly side of me. I guess you can do it because she did, but I think the backlash to the squad illustrated that it's problematic. The squad in itself is a problematic fave. And to quote Bridget Todd, how many people are in this squad? (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of the squad, as I think you know, Elisa. I just think that squad to me seems like it's an automatically exclusive thing, right? So if you've got a squad, my immediate first thought is who's included and who's excluded? What are the ins and outs of this squad? I also didn't love that people gave her all this credit for coming up with the idea of squad, when in fact the term squad has had roots in black and hip-hop communities since forever. Like, Taylor Swift did not invent the idea of squads and squatting up. Those have been in hip-hop songs for a very long time. And that I didn't love seeing how when she started saying squad and squad goals, it became a thing. And it just seemed like another way that she was able to put her sort of shiny white girl branding on something that already existed. Yeah, and she never gave any credit for not inventing it. She did popularize it. Yeah, But she she's not. Sh- it's not like she said... FYI, historically, this is, uh, you know, long been a thing in black culture and in hip hop and I'm squatting up now and that's exciting. You should do. There was no acknowledgement of that. I definitely think more culturally, we associated the idea of squad with Taylor. Whether or not that was something that is on us or on her, I think is a good question. But it was just something that I couldn't shake it off feeling a little bit (laughs) icky about. I think you're totally spot on. It also felt triggering for a lot of women who were bullied by women because the click culture, like if she called it click, which who did that, Kanye? Yeah. Hanging with my click, right? Yeah, that's Kanye and Jay-Z. Right. Yeah. It really reminded you of that sort of catty girl culture of high school or middle school where a pack of roaming best girlfriends could be vicious. Yeah, a pack of roaming, blue-eyed, leggy, beautiful, popular, powerful girls. Honestly, sometimes I feel like the only reason I don't like Taylor Swift is because she reminds me of every popular girl from my high school who I was legitimately afraid of. Right. And at the same time, she's playing the outsider dork card. Like, I'm just, I don't belong just like you. And we're like, okay, shut up. You're perfect. You know, (laughs) like, just own it. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's the frustration. I, I honestly, going back to that, I remember finding out that Taylor Swift drove like a luxury convertible when she was in high school. And that was the first time I realized, oh, this persona that she had built early on in her career where, you know, she's got the curly, frizzy hair and the glasses and I'm so nerdy. It's like, you're, if you're driving a car like that in high school, come on. Like, we all, know, we all know what those social markers mean and what they don't mean. And I just saw her adopting social markers that were had nothing to do with her actual lived experience. And I remember the first time that those two things came in conflict, something about finding out that she drove a luxury convertible car in high school just blew my mind. It right. blew the whole thing wide open. Well, she probably went to a school where everybody did. Yeah. And so she could somehow still be an outsider dork. I mean, I'm not saying she was or wasn't, but in my high school... That would not have made you an outsider dork. Now, there's one other thing we have to talk about, Taylor-related, that I actually thought was a pretty awesome thing that she did, and that was her outspoken, courageous advocacy on sexual assault and really standing up for victims of sexual assault, not only through pursuing her own case, which was really a countersuit, but let's let's talk about that more in a second, but also her support of Kesha, who we know has also been really abused by her own record label and her own producer, who she's accused of assault. Now, 
Taylor Swift did not need to go through the costly, time-consuming, and probably very triggering process of taking this jerk to court. And she didn't even go out of her way to sue this guy. She actually countersued. So this guy, David Mueller, is like a DJ in Denver who, during a fan meet and greet, she says assaulted her, right? She says that he stuck his hand up her skirt and grabbed her ass during a fan meet and greet. She didn't sue him, but he sued her because he ended up getting fired because she made sure that his boss knew what had gone down. He got fired and he was suing Taylor Swift and her manager and parent for back pay that he lost due to losing his job. And to me, I would be like, oh, hell no, I'm taking this asshole to court. What? A Exactly. He said that she falsely accused him of assault, which is like how much chutzpah does it have to take to actually assault someone and then sue them for accusing you of assault and having lost your job? That's like, just think about the audacity of doing that to someone like Taylor Swift. So he was suing for 2.98 million in damages. She countersued for $1 and won this past August. So I actually have nothing but respect for Taylor in this regard. I have nothing, kudos to her. I can only imagine how many young women out there who have dealt with sexual assault, who have been told it's their fault, what were you wearing, all of that nonsense that we tell survivors of sexual assault and sex crimes, Taylor would have none of it. And I can't imagine what it must feel like to be a young survivor of sexual assault and watch this. I, I applaud her for this. This is this is what I'm talking about. I think that when Taylor Swift uses her platform to take a stand, it can reverberate through the nation, through the world. And I think somebody out there is going to have watched that trial and watched how she didn't back down, didn't allow herself to be shamed, didn't allow herself to be victim blamed and said, no, something illegal happened to me and I am going to have my justice. Somebody out there is watching that and they're going to go report or they're going to go get their justice. They're going to hold somebody accountable. And I think I have, I, this is what I'm talking about. She has this platform where she can really do so much good. When it goes right, I think with Taylor Swift, it goes really, really, really right. Alisa, what do you think? I thought it was really well-timed because it happened, I believe, in August or September, late August, early September during back to school. And that's the month where obviously students are going back to school and on campus rape and sexual assault is usually the highest. So I thought it came at a nice time for her to have that message of saying, look, it's totally inappropriate to be touched in this way. I think post Weinstein now, it's a really interesting, it's really interesting to look back at Taylor's case post Weinstein and see how she in a way helped set the stage for women to start calling this gross behavior within their industry out on a national stage. So I applaud that. Do I think she was using it a little bit to set the ground or set the stage for her new album? Yeah. Uh, But I wouldn't put it past her as a celebrity to want to stay relevant at any cost. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And this is, like Bridget, you were saying earlier, an example of how powerful Taylor can be when she wants to be an advocate. In a statement following the trial, Swift actually acknowledged the symbolism behind her win and in doing so, for the first time that I've read, really called out her own privilege in a way that really made me excited and think, okay, Taylor, you're on the right track. Like maybe we can see more of this in the future from her. She wrote, I want to acknowledge the privilege that I benefit from in life, in society, and in my ability to shoulder the enormous cost of defending myself in a trial like this. She continued, 
My hope is to help those whose voices should also be heard. Therefore, I'll be making donations in the near future to multiple organizations that help sexual assault victims defend themselves. This is the kind of thing that's going to get me at a Taylor Swift concert front <laughs> row, rocking a red lip, singing along. Because right. I love it. Like, if I could use this as a case study for a, how to be an advocate, how to, how to show others how to be advocates, I would. And I, I just think that what she did was so brave and so great and so right. And it just really goes to show the immense power that someone like Taylor Swift has. And this whole lawsuit and this great statement came almost a year after she donated $250,000 to Kesha, two days after a New York judge denied Kesha a court injunction that would have allowed her to record new music outside of her record label. So the courts don't always rule in women's favor on this issue, even if you're a famous pop star. And whether she's winning and making a really profound statement like that or watching a colleague lose and throwing some money her way as a token of support and appreciation. This issue is an example of Taylor walking the feminist walk and we really need to see her do that in a more intersectional way. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm sure that publicly supporting Kesha over Dr. Luke probably does have negative connotations for Taylor, even somebody as powerful as she is in the industry. And I think that the fact that she did it anyway shows Sometimes being a feminist is hard, but you do it anyway. And I just, I think that what she did is exactly what we're talking about when it comes to walking the walk. When we come back from this next break, we're going to talk through some of the ways she's not always walking the walk, some of the ways she could walk that walk a lot better, especially when it comes to race and intersectional feminism and how we hope that we can expect more of this kind of privilege acknowledgement and real feminism on display from the one and only Taylor Swift. We'll be right back. And we're back. And it's time. It's time to talk through some of the biggest issues that folks rightfully have with Taylor Swift. And let's start with this concept of her use of the white victim. She sort of plays this white victim card, which to me, I think the narrative began around the Kanye VMA situation when she received the award over and above Queen B, who we've already described and sort of as the queen of pop. So Taylor gets on stage to accept her award. Kanye West sort of jumps right up there, takes the mic, silences her, makes her look like the white victim. And I think she's been playing that angle ever since. What do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with the idea of the white victim. I think that was one of the first examples where she exposed herself as one of the most dangerous types of white women. There's a great quote by cultural critic Damon Young, and he said that this is of Taylor's um, next altercation with Kanye regarding uh, the recordings that he made, um, saying that he made that famous, meaning Taylor. And what Damon says is, what Taylor did was use the inherent empathy and benefit of the doubt her white womanhood allows her to possess to throw a black person under the bus if necessary and convenient. And I feel like this this first instance with Kanye on the VMA stage was the first look that we got of how she uses her victimhood as a way to get things from popular culture and that 
kind of like helps her brand move forward. She's a victim. She's the outsider. And you can't really exploit the same system you claim to be a victim of. And that's kind of my issue with this first altercation with Kanye. Yeah, I mean, I I honestly could not agree more. And I think what you said about the idea of the benefit of the doubt, that's what I think for me is one of the things I find so frustrating about Taylor Swift is that she sees this. So first of all, it's kind of one of those don't hate the player, hate the game situations where I think Taylor Swift sees the world that we live in. She sees that Kanye West as a black man up against her as a white woman, that he is going to automatically have people, no matter what he does. So I think that what he did at the VMAs was awful, but that people are going to automatically be skeptical of him. And so when you look at what happened between, you know, her being like, oh, he had this line in a song and never talked to me about it, and him being like, I got permission from her to use this line, automatically I think that she knows, well, people are going to believe me over him because I'm a white woman. And I think that she plays into that in a way that I find very, very uncomfortable. Playing up her own victimhood over and over again, I think is something that she's really benefited from. But I mean, that Kanye West VMA speech, that happened so long ago. And she's still like years and years and years later, she referenced it in her her next her next time at the VMAs. She gave that speech that was partly about it. Like, I get it that it was a traumatic big thing that happened to her, but I don't like the idea of building a brand on this one thing. Mm. And once again, SNL sort of mirrored this when they satirized her being constantly in a a state of shock and awe. And oh my goodness, I won again. She sort of plays this geeky outsider, like you've mentioned earlier, Elisa, but she's anything but, right? She sort of plays the underdog because everybody loves an underdog, even though we know she's not. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit, Kanye did victimize her when he interrupted her. That was rude, right? I think Obama, President Obama called him a jackass when describing Kanye's behavior. Totally. But you're right. She's constantly played into that because it's worked for her. And what was the most troubling instance in which she played that card, in my opinion, is this Twitter fight with Nicki Minaj. So... Nikki, uh, the nominations come out again for the best music video, a VMA years later. And Nikki says, you know, she wasn't nominated. Only women with thin bodies get nominated for these kinds of awards. Now, if you look at the lineup of all the other nominees, it was Beyonce, Taylor Swift, and a couple of guys, like a bunch of guys. And so Taylor interpreted that as a slight against her. Because everything is about her. Well, actually, if you think of the... I think it was a rational conclusion, but she missed the point. She thought she was being called out because she mentioned slim white women's bodies. The only slim white woman in that category was her, Taylor Swift. So she didn't actually say white. Oh, she didn't? No, okay. but she did say... So it, it's... I, I think that's a fair... like a. I think that's a fair reading between the lines. But here's my thing. Yeah. Nicki Minaj about her. Yeah. Nicki Minaj wasn't calling out Taylor Swift. Nicki Minaj was calling out white supremacy. Exactly. And Taylor yeah. Swift, in her mind, thinks this is about me. And it's not about her. And I think that's what, for me, that's what it comes down to. Not everything is about you winning and women supporting women and all that. Nicki Minaj had a right to rightfully call out the ways that white supremacy play out in our entertainment industry. If you have eyes, you see it. It's not not a surprise, not a secret. The fact that Taylor Swift cannot see that for what it is, I think is a real problem and really highlights the fact that Taylor Swift is not maybe read in on these issues. Now, of course, I mean, it would be great if Taylor Swift was this like woke fighter for social change. So like, you know, that would be great. But 
no one, she doesn't have to be. Like, she's doing her thing, fine. But to try to wade into it when a black woman is talking about right. how white supremacy plays out in her industry and making it about her, that is textbook, like, victimized white woman. Well, and beyond that, she used feminism as a weapon in her response. She said, it's unlike you, Nikki, to tear other women down. So she tried to play this holier-than-thou, I'm-a-better-feminist-than-you-are card when it was clearly not about her when it was not about her, but she totally missed the mark on it. And in critiquing Nikki, getting in a fight with Nikki, I think a lot of observers were like, oh my God, some of like my favorite badass women artists are fighting. Mom like, and dad are fighting. Like, oh my God, please get it over it. And to be fair, not to defend that move, because that was so ignorant of Taylor, but she did come around saying, and I quote, I thought I was being called out. I missed the point. I misunderstood, then misspoke. I am sorry, Nikki. And like, nobody's perfect. Nobody's born woke, right? I think that was a tough moment, but I'm pl- I'm relatively pleased with how she came around. What do you think, Elise? Yeah, I agree. And Bridget, you've mentioned this once, but that instance of Taylor being the victim of Nikki's, what she interpreted as shade, is so similar to the examples of black women speaking out and white women being offended because they're saying an opinion that has very little to do with them. It's about some larger issue, but white women being offended by it. And that is something that has followed feminism and the historical struggle for representation and rights and access and just like trying to be a person in the world. That is something that has like followed that struggle to just be a human. And Taylor just didn't get it. She didn't see it. And it was just such an odd copy paste of history where it was just repeating itself in social media. Now, Taylor comes from privilege, which we have unpacked already. So, you know, is it shocking and surprising that a white skinny blonde woman who comes from a very, very wealthy family isn't read up on women and gender and race studies 101? No, she didn't go to college. This is not like the person who we are going to learn about social movements from. However, one would think that that access to privilege would also buy you, I don't know, some cultural understanding (laughs) of like how things work amongst women. And I don't think that feminism is useful if it's only for white privileged blonde, skinny women. Like, it's not just about being nice to people all the time. It's calling stuff like this out. And I think that that was a missed opportunity for Taylor to be an ally to Nikki and not just be like, you're hurting me. That's mean. Girl. Amen. (laughs) You could not, I mean, I could not have put it better myself. I do. I think as one, as a black woman who hosts a podcast about feminism that has a lot of white women listeners, I totally see this play out all the time, every day, all day, every day, where if you call something out or you you talk about a frustration that you have, oftentimes it can feel like white women don't want to hear it or it's like it hurts their feelings or it offends them. And you it feels like you can't actually speak your truth because you don't want to offend Taylor Swift or whatever. And again, I mean, when I saw that interaction happen on Twitter, I thought... Taylor Swift might genuinely think that feminism is being nice to Taylor Swift. And if, if something includes being mean to Taylor Swift, it's not feminist. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, that, that interaction made me think that. Feminism is just supporting and uplifting Taylor Swift. And if feminism doesn't look like that, then it's not feminism. And I think that's what she was accusing Nikki of. Yeah, and I think Nikki put it perfectly by saying, this is something you should speak out about. She responded to Taylor saying, like, I wasn't talking about you. I don't know where you got that from, but this is a problem that's 
bigger than you, and it's something you should speak out about. Did she? No. Of course she, not. she apologized. She came around. She's had her own awakening, it seems, a, a few days later on Twitter. But has she taken up that mantle? No. Has she fought for diversity in music? No. Has she made race a part of her things that she fights for? No, she hasn't. And I would like to see that change. Totally. And I think that's a really important part uh, of this conversation because... I don't think feminism is that big of a movement at this point where we can be revoking people's feminist cards. We can't exactly start turning people away. So, like, we're very happy to have Taylor Swift in in our ranks and in our army. However, like, calling each other out is part of what being a feminist is. And so if she's going to get on her stage and on her platform and call herself a feminist and use it as a marketing tool... She's relying on a social movement that women have fought for representation and access to rights, money, personhood. If you're going to use that to sell stuff back to people, you better be aware of the foundation on which you're building your house because you're building it on the backs of men and women who have fought hard for that stuff. And you better understand the language that you're speaking in, just like she understood the language to speak to young girls in when she started her career. Yeah, I mean... That's exactly what I think that my biggest issue is with her. Nobody is forcing her to use feminism as this marketing tool. No one is saying you have to be a feminist. You have to talk about feminism and squad and this and that. She's made a choice that that is something that she's going to be about. You can't just take that up. It's not just a costume. If you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. Sometimes being a feminist isn't fun. No, Sometimes yeah. being a feminist means being called a feminist killjoy or a social justice warrior or taking up causes that's not very fun or lucrative to take up. Sometimes it's hard work. Sometimes it's hell. But, you know, you're calling yourself a feminist. You better damn well be ready to walk that walk. And I don't see her doing that. And if you really think about it, her embrace of feminism is relatively new. Back in 2012, she said she wasn't a feminist because, quote, I don't really think about things as guys versus girls. Luckily, it seems that uh, squad member Lena Dunham took her under her wing and uh, had a little chat with her. Hopefully, Nikki took her under her wing and said, let's talk about intersectional feminism a few years later. But she evolved like so many women do, to realize that, as she put it, quote, I didn't quite understand that saying you're a feminist is just saying that you hope women and men will have equal rights and equal opportunities. So has she come around and come out as a feminist? Yes, but, you know, as Jill Filipovic wrote for the Washington Post, feminism is more than just supporting your girlfriends and churning out charming catchphrases about girl power. I actually liked seeing the evolution of her going from I'm not a feminist, to embracing it. I actually like seeing how that can happen in real time and following celebrities as they grapple with these issues. Because, you know, my me coming to call myself a feminist was a journey. I'm sure it was a journey for all of us. And I actually applaud her for not, like, you know, dying on the hill of anti-feminism for saying, actually, it turns out that feminism is a cool thing and I am a feminist after all. And showing that, like, you can make that transition. And really, you know what's not very feminist of her? Bridget, was this past election cycle when we were kind of counting on feminists. We were kind of counting on white women in particular to uh, come out and vote and to come out and vote for the candidate who was going to make life a little easier on all women. The candidate who did not brag about sexually assaulting women? Oh, yes, that one. Yeah, that one? That one. Where the hell was Taylor Swift in 2016? If I told you the amount of time I have spent thinking, writing, researching, and talking about who Taylor Swift voted for... (laughs) It would blow your mind. You would be like, there's like strings and paper on my apartment wall where I've got charts and I'm like crossing this to this. On this day, she said this. Like, 
I'm down a rabbit hole of trying to figure this out. And here's the thing. When all these other members of her squad, Lena Dunham... Oh, Katy Perry's not exactly a member of her squad. Oh, true, true, true. But she was stumping like crazy for Hillary. Yeah, when you have all these other prominent young women, not just saying go out and vote, but being an advocate for voting for somebody that you really, really believe in, I was like, where was Taylor? It would have taken something subtle, right? Like, I know that she has this country fan base. Maybe she doesn't want to alienate them. I totally, totally get it. But, and I'm not saying that you have to, that I expected people to go out and be rah-rah, you know, stumping for Hillary Clinton or whatever. But I do think that it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to say, you know what I'm not down with? People who brag about sexual assault. You know who did that? Donald Trump. You know who's running for president? Donald Trump. Yeah, it was just noticeably mute, right? It was a noticeable anomaly in terms of her brand of being rah-rah feminism, rah-rah squad, but not at all touching politics. And it seems like it's one thing to abstain from going political, even in our climate where all celebrity work is basically becoming political and it feels like our idols and politics have merged in a way recently that's very new. But it's another thing to be the poster child of the Aryan supporters, uh, like the Aryan race, like the neo-Nazi movement, and to say nothing. Well, that might sound like a huge exaggeration, but if you Google Taylor Swift and Nazis, that's actually exactly what's going on. So if you don't know this, kind of a weird thing on the internet is that Taylor Swift has, for whatever reason, been embraced as this Aryan goddess by literal Nazis and white supremacists. And this is something that is taken over the internet. There are so much subcultures dedicated to it. And actually, the Daily Beast published an article earlier this year with the headline, It's Time for Taylor Swift to Denounce Her Neo-Nazi Admirers. So according to Andre Anglin, who is the writer of the white supremacist blog, The Daily Stormer, he says, first, Taylor Swift is a pure Aryan goddess, like something out of a classical Greek poem, Athena reborn. That's the most important thing. It is also an established fact that Taylor Swift is secretly a Nazi and is simply waiting for the right time when Donald Trump makes it safe for her to come out and announce her Aryan agenda to the world. Probably she will be betrothed to Trump's son and they will be crowned American royalty. So if this is out on a leading white nationalist website and, you're, and you don't say anything... I think it's a problem. Maybe she's thinking, I I don't even want to give attention to it, but it's out there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a lot of crazy stuff that's said about you when you're that famous, and picking and choosing what to respond to is not easy, but given the climate, given what's happening, given the violence, given Charlottesville, given this election to stay mute, I mean, how do you do that when you're as influential as she is? Choosing to sit out an election like 2016's is one thing, but choosing to sit out an opportunity to proclaim your values and take action on your values. I mean, it's like she's taking polls. You know what I mean? She seems like the most hyper-calculated candidate out there. Like, she will poll before she decides what to speak out against. Definitely. And I don't think that speaking out against Nazis should be a controversial thing. And yet I think it might be right now. I think most of what's problematic about Taylor all boils down to racial issues, really and truly. If you look at the cultural appropriation conversation around her use of the sort of nameplate earrings and twerking in Shake It Off, the music video, some people said, well, it's not the same as really co-opting black culture because she was sort of parodying it. Not sure if that argument really stands, but I kind of get it, right? She wasn't trying to say, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm Miley Cyrus. I'm actually using black culture. 
to be cool. She was saying, like, look at me trying on all these different genres. Haha, ha, aren't I a dork? You know, different, but still not cool. A little cringy. It's cringy. And I think for me, why it's cringy is that it really highlights something that I, race notwithstanding, have a problem with with her, is that she often makes a show of how, like, adorably bad she is at things. Like, oh, I'm in front of all these black professional dancers who are doing a great job of dancing, and I don't know what I'm doing. Isn't that funny? And it's like, maybe it is a racialized thing, because I don't think that people of color get the same leeway to bask in their own expressions of mediocrity. And Taylor (laughs) Swift does that sometimes, and it drives me nuts. Yes. Yes. Basking in their expressions of mediocrity. I love that. Because her whole thing is, you know... Adorkable. Right. Yeah. I don't like it. uh, Yeah, I totally get it. The most problematic, the most problematic expression of cultural appropriation 101 is Google wildest dreams. That video, I think, went nowhere in part because people were so horrified that, oh my gosh, is she romanticizing African colonialism? Yes, folks. Yes, indeed. She's on the African plains, okay? Sort of a la colonial uh, occupation days. And it looks like a magical love story. And it's just like, are you kidding me? I mean, I almost, this was so bad, I almost felt bad for her because I'm thinking, where where was the, like, someone in her team effed up that yeah. this got out there, right? Yes. Like, this was a breach of some sort of system. She should have someone in her team who, like, pulls her aside and is like, girl, this is a mistake. Yeah, quality I, control. Yeah, I almost am like something, there was no quality control, there was a failure of something in her team, and I feel bad that she got, that got duped by it or something. Yeah, it's not good. And then, even the most recent video, Are You Ready For It?, Um, which we've sort of abstained from talking about our feelings about her latest musical release, mainly because we don't have very nice things to say. And I'm ready for the whole album. I'm like looking forward to maybe, maybe it'll get better. But music aside, the video, Are You Ready For It?, has graffiti-laden urban sort of scenes that are very little Tokyo-esque. There's actual characters on the walls, and it just feels a little bit like she's maybe headed in a Miley Cyrus bangers direction because she's basically rapping in a video. Taylor Swift rapping. Ooh, I don't want to... It's not good. It's not good. It's just like, why do you have to do the race thing? Why do you have to cross those lines to be cool? You don't have to. White women, alert. You do not need to pretend to be black in order to come across as cool. Yeah, and she's, so, as we said earlier, she's so talented in other ways. I like, know. she doesn't need to pretend to twerk or pretend to rap to make a good song. In fact, I would say doing that is a like gimmicky and ensures your song won't be good. Yeah. I think that she should focus on her real talent and not try to be something she's not for a weird gimmick or joke. Maybe as retaliation. Maybe sometimes playing to your critics instead of playing to your fans will take you in a bad direction. Just a thought. Just an artistic musing. But here's the thing. Is she on the same level as Miley Cyrus in terms of white girl fail? Oh, no. In my book, no. Yeah. She hasn't adopted That's a culture and then denounced that same culture. Yeah, exactly. You know, and honestly, I can forgive a few slip-ups here and there. If you're someone who is genuinely seems like you're interested in being thoughtful and curious and willing to learn and learn and grow. And so I think I see that in Taylor Swift in a way that maybe I don't see in Miley Cyrus. I agree completely. And so I want to wrap this up by saying 
This is a tough episode to parse through. This is a tough conversation. We're so glad to have you, Elisa, joining us for this one because it's not easy to really break down an artist like Taylor Swift who is so impressive, so influential, so talented, and fraught. And it is okay, listeners, just as a reminder is actually okay to have problematic faves. It is okay to love their work and hold them to a high moral standard. And like you said, Bridget, to see and hope that they learn and grow so we can all learn and grow together. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like I hate Taylor Swift. I'm just not her biggest fan. And I think the reason why I'm not her biggest fan is because I see her using feminism in ways that honestly remind me of myself many, many years ago. And I want her to be better. I want her to be a role model for all the other young women out there like myself who are still finding their feminist footing. And I want her to model how we can all be more inclusive feminists. And I think she has this amazing platform. She's this amazing, talented person who has harnessed the energy of young women and validated them in ways that, frankly, they don't really get validated a lot. And I think that she could just tweak some things and refine that and really get there. And that's what I want to see for her. I just want to reiterate that I think being a fan of Taylor Swift and being a critic of Taylor Swift is part and parcel of the same fandom. So if I came off maybe as a little bit critical of Taylor, really it comes from a place that I want to see her embrace and use the platform and the stage that she has created for herself for a broader and a more intersectional purpose. I think that everyone would benefit Um, But I also think that we're at this cultural moment where we just can't trust white women. We can't trust white women to come out and vote for and support other women. We can't trust white women on juries, and we can't trust white women to lead a lot of companies. Um, And that's because white women have repeatedly ignored conversations of race and class and gender and sexuality, all the stuff that you guys so awesomely talk about and dig into on the podcast. And we're at this historical moment where those conversations feel most vital and most important to our national conversation. And I think Taylor is at a great moment in her career and in her platform to help us have those really hard conversations. And by the way, that's the role of a pop star. A pop star or a celebrity really helps us negotiate our identity in troubled times. If you look back at all the celebrities who have been able to withstand cultural changes, the ones who are able to join that conversation are the ones that stay relevant. So I hope that Taylor Swift can be able to help us. And we're the ones who put the pop in popular culture. We're the ones who make popular culture. We as fans look to celebrities like Taylor to make sense of the world, ourselves and our identities. And I just want to see Taylor help us reconcile those contradictions of our culture and this weird, bizarre time that we live in, Mm -hmm. because that's how she stays relevant. And I want to see her stay relevant. Elisa, it is such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for helping us wade through the waters of Taylor Swift, our problematic fave. Elisa, where can folks find out more about what you're up to? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Pop Culture Pirate. On Twitter, I'm at Pop Cult Pirate because Pop Culture Pirate was too long. And you can hit me up on Facebook at Elisa Kreisinger, my full name. Um, And if you are interested in hearing Bridget and I deep dive more on this topic, Taylor Swift and Problematic Babes, you can listen to Strong Opinions Loosely Held, where we also go into a bunch of pop culture topics from a feminist perspective, um, like why HGTV explains America and a bunch of other fun pop culture conversations. So I hope to see some of you guys over there. Absolutely. So we want to hear from you, Sminty listeners. 
What are your feelings on Taylor Swift? Do you find some of what she says problematic? Do you hope for a more woke Taylor Swift, perhaps? Do we hope for a Taylor Swift that uh, comes around, finds her feminist footing, and especially is better when it comes to race and intersectional feminism. We want to hear from you, and I hope we're not alone in this because this is a tough one and it's here for you. So I finally stopped dragging my feet and we went and did it. So send us a tweet at MomStuffPodcast. Find us on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou or send us an email if you've got to unpack an even lengthier thought at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. 